Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Um, welcome to another episode of um, NeuroPodCases. My name is Viraj Barambi and today we're lucky enough to have uh, Dr. Stephen Keddy with us. Welcome, Stephen. Hi, thanks for inviting me, Viraj. No worries. Um, so Dr. Keddy's a um, neurology uh, ST in uh, London and he's coming to the end of his PhD uh, looking at poems um, and hopefully uh, by the end of this podcast uh, we'll all be a lot more enlightened on what that is um, but today um, he's giving us his time to talk about um, the more broader sort of uh, topic of paraproteinemic neuropathies. Um, so uh, Stephen let's start at the beginning uh, with probably the most simple bit but um, what do we mean when we say neuropathy? Um, so we're talking about patients who are presenting with uh, damage to the peripheral nervous system. Um, so uh, essentially that's patients who you'd expect to have sort of motor or sensory problems in the upper or lower limbs, um, often with a reflexive or reduced reflexes as your sort of um, primary uh, symptomatology. Uh, I think when a patient presents to you in the clinic with a neuropathy, um, as many people know, the sort of most common presentation would be of a sort of generalised symmetrical polyneuropathy. But it's important that neurologists identify uh, and sort of phenotype the, the patients who are presenting. So you want to use your history and examination skills, um, uh, particularly to identify those who've got mononeuropathies, which tend to be uh, compressive neuropathies, that, um, such as a, as a sort of common perineal nerve is one of the most common. Um, are you looking at a mononeuritis multiplex or a mononeuropathy pattern, which is tends to be related to more uh, severe conditions like vasculitis? Um, of your polyneuropathy cases, so they tend to be very symmetrical in origin, quite often are length dependent. So they start at the toes and then they progress uh, proximally over time. And once they reach the knees, you start developing symptoms in the fingers um, by definition. Um, it's also important to identify sort of what modalities are affected. So are you looking at purely sensory, sensory motor, motor only? Um, and that sort of narrows down your differential diagnosis purely from setting up those phenotypes. And then sort of lastly, whether or not this is a plexopathy, um, which is slightly more complex or radiculopathy, which obviously is quite common in more elderly people with tend to be more sort of pain, dermatomal lesions, um, ridiculous symptoms itself. So that's probably how I split them up broadly. Um, and as you know, um, then your history is more about sort of the time frame, risk factors, um, certain things that might underlie uh, what that phenotype is you're seeing in the clinic. So that's that's um, quite a broad brushstroke across all of it. Uh, thank you. So I guess today um, we're going to focus down on to um, paraproteinemic neuropathies. Um, so, so you've gone into what uh, the presentation often is of um, distal sort of symmetric sensory motor neuropathies that are very slow. And the common things we learn during sort of membership exams, I guess, is, you know, diabetes and nutritional causes and alcohol. They present in that sort of very slow way of, and, and very distal way. Um, what sort of clinical features um, might suggest uh, something, something else is going on, that, that a paraprotein might be involved? Well, quite often, um, I think there are quite various um, presentations with a paraproteinemic neuropathy, and we'll, we'll talk about those probably in a bit more detail about some of the underlying conditions. In some respects, I think it's, it, you may not be able to identify one clinically. Um, one thing to say is that 
Uh, for all patients who you see, I would suggest with a neuropathy you should have a sort of standard battery of investigations performed, um, particularly looking at the glucose, HbA1c, thyroid function, a B12 and folate. And then I'd also always send off for a, a serum protein electrophoresis and also an immunofixation, trying to identify a paraprotein in the blood. Um, once you, you know, one thing to mention is that an MGUS, a, a, a identification of a paraprotein in the blood, they are very common in, in patients who present with neuropathy. And, um, and I think underlying that, as I say, you, you might not be able to tell uh, from the patient's examination features that they have one. So you have to send off specific tests for it. And I think just one more thing to be clear about as well is with regards to the serum protein electrophoresis and immunofixation test. Um, essentially, a protein electrophoresis, what they do is they take the patient's serum and then they run an electric charge through that serum and it separates the proteins out by their molecular weight. Um, we've got a number of different types of um, proteins in the blood, albumin being the most uh, the heaviest protein, but also the most abundant. So you'll expect to see a big spike in there. We've also got alpha and beta proteins and then the gamma globulins. And that's where your antibodies are produced. So typically on a serum protein electrophoresis, if they identify a monoclonal uh, plasma cell disorder or a, or a paraprotein, what they'll see is a spike in that um, gamma globulin chain. So they'll be able to send you a report back saying this patient has a paraprotein and it will tell you kind of what the proportion of that might be. So three grams per deciliter, for example. But it doesn't give you any indication in terms of what the actual heavy and light chain distribution is of that abnormal uh, paraprotein. And that's where serum immunofixation comes in. And what they're able to do from that, in without going into a huge amount of detail, but they'll be able to identify from that paraprotein what's the heavy and light chain distribution. Uh, so they'll end up saying this is actually an IgG kappa um, uh, monoclonal protein that's identified in the blood. And also another thing that's very important to say is that quite often in the paraproteinemic neuropathies, the paraproteins that you're seeing are very subtle. Um, they can sometimes be and quite often be undetected by the standard serum protein electrophoresis. And that's why an immunofixation, which is also a more sensitive test, um, it, I would say is also um, uh, essential. And quite a lot of the laboratories will only test the immunofixation if they identify a power protein through serum protein electrophoresis. But it's really important that neurologists make it clear to the laboratories that we also want serum protein electrophoresis and immunofixation test together um, because that's going to increase your diagnostic yield. Excellent. Thank you. So, so certainly there's a core set of tests that we need to do on, on neuropathy patients. Um, and, and obviously, as, as, as you outlined at the beginning, there's no particular clinical feature that picks out a paraproteinemic neuropathy from, say, you know, uh, an idiopathic um, peripheral neuropathy. Um, and you went into quite a bit of detail there about serum protein electrophoresis, uh, immunofixation, and, and why both are required in order to increase your yield. So those two would be your sort of um, tests of choice as your initial screen on, on most neuropathy patients. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, there are a few more other tests that you, you could consider. Um, but I mean, essentially, really, those would be the sort of standard and routine tests that I would always think about. Um, I think, you know, once you, I mean, we can kind of talk firstly about what a paraprotein is, um, and then we can kind of talk about potentially what other investigations you might do to look into that in more detail, if that would help. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's do it. So let, let, what, what, is, what is a paraprotein? Yeah, good question. <laughs> so um, probably the best way to think about one is just starting off kind of where they come from. So Everybody, as you know, um, produce their, uh, their, their T and B uh, white cells from the bone marrow. 
um, of the B lymphocytes, you've got your pro B cells, which go through a number of developmental and maturation steps in the bone marrow before they uh, finally mature into an antibody secreting cell. So that's the, uh, the plasma cells and the long-lived uh, plasma cells and plasma blasts. Um, they're the cells that, the, the, that produce antibodies. And in most people, we've got a different large repertoire of different plasma cells, antibody secreting cells, and we produce lots and lots of different antibodies. And that's obviously to fight off various different infections. So in most people, we'll have a, a, a different proportion of those antibodies, and they'll be IgG, IgA, IgM, heavy chain, and you'll have a light chain, which would be kappa and lambda. And we produce all sorts of different ones of those to fight off infections. Now, if somebody starts developing a malignant uh, proliferating B cell that then, uh, or malignant proliferating plasma cell, then that's what we call a monoclonal plasma cell disorder. And that means that that plasma cell will then pump out only one type of the antibodies that we're referring to. So what will happen there is this uh, monoclonal antibody is what they're detecting in the blood through the serum protein electrophoresis. And that's essentially what the paraprotein is, is they're telling you that they've found one particular antibody that's in abundance that really shouldn't be there. And it's an indication that this person has an underlying uh, plasma cell disorder. Um, with regards to that underlying plasma cell disorder, um, as you know, there's kind of several different types, but certainly um, the most common of all of those is the sort of monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance or MGUS for short. And essentially what that's referring to is a, a plasma cell disorder, which is uh, considered to be in somewhat benign, um, it's normally less than three grams per litre in the serum. You shouldn't have several of those cells in the bone marrow, typically less than 10%, and it shouldn't necessarily be causing any uh, concerning features. And it's those crab features that people talk about in myeloma um, that kind of distinguishes the two. So high calcium, renal disease, anemia, and bone lesions. So the MGUS is probably the most common type of paraprotein that people see. Um, but it's up to the um, haematologist and neurologist to work out whether or not the paraprotein that we're identifying in the blood is a sort of benign MGUS or is it something more serious, um, such as one of the different haematological malignancies? And also, is that um, is that paraprotein actually associated with the neuropathy and uh, and therefore something that requires treatment? Um, excellent. I think that's that that certainly leads me on to one of the questions that I was going to go on to next. Obviously, you know. As, as neurologists, we see quite a lot of neuropathy. Neuropathy is very common. Um, what we also know is that MGUS is very common. And it's saying that your, your normal panel of tests for anyone with a neuropathy should be to look at their protein electrophoresis and their immunofixation. And we're, we're going to find quite a lot of MGUS. So can you try and help um, help us navigate the space of what what do we do with that result when it comes back and says, yeah, sure, there is a there's a, a gamma protein spike and you think this person does have neuropathy. How do you try and tie them together and work out whether it is genuinely associated or just coincidental? Yep, sure. Um, so I think you see an MGUS in 2% of people in under 50 and uh, the number of increases with age, so 7% in patients over 80. Um, and neuropathy is the most sort of common association with an MGUS. Um, so 70% of people who've got an MGUS will have some form of neuropathy. And if you flip that on its head, 10% of patients who have a neuropathy will also have a paraprotein. So it's quite a common association. Um, one thing possibly to mention is that the um, heavy chain in, in a uh, paraprotein that you'll see in a patient with a neuropathy tends to be more likely an IgM over IgGs and IgAs. And that distribution is 
uh, flipped in the other direction for MGUSs and, and myeloma, which is most commonly IgG and IgA. We don't know exactly why that is. It may be because IgM antibodies have a greater affinity for peripheral nerve epitopes, but more work needs to be done on that. Um, I think really trying to work out whether or not um, the paraprotein is uh, related to the neuropathy, it kind of does in some respects go down to the, the, the phenotype and the way that the patient presents. And as I mentioned before, you might not be able to um, typically say this patient is somebody who's definitely going to have a paraproteinemic disorder. But when you identify a paraprotein with a patient, I think it is quite important then to kind of think about the different phenotypes. The ones that you're going to see most commonly um, is this uh, phenotype called DADS for short, which is a distal acquired demyelinating sensory neuropathy. So that's patients who have, um, as the sort of uh, the, the, the name entitles, uh, they're going to have a pretty much predominantly sensory neuropathy or sensory ataxic neuropathy. So they might be quite unsteady with a broad based gait with a sensory ataxia, tend to be slightly uh, older. They won't have much in terms of motor symptoms. And generally that's something which progresses quite slowly over time. And that's also what you'll see in patients who have the typical anti-mag antibodies. That's the sort of clinical phenotype you'll see with them. Um, there are in no circumstances, you know, you might have a patient with a paraprotein and that DADS phenotype. Now, if they're very mild and they're progressing very slowly, it's not necessarily something that you need to jump in and, and, and do anything about at that stage. Um, we can talk a bit later about potentially um, some of those phenotypes, so you might do something to treat them. There are other patients who will also have a more distal length dependent, um, axonal, sensory uh, predominant uh, neuropathy as well. So that's kind of the more, I don't know, you might classify that as sort of the more boring neurological phenotype where they've got this gradual uh, progression of an axonal neuropathy. It's not particularly painful. Again, something that progresses very slowly over time in the presence of a power protein. And once again, you, you may not need to do anything about those cases. I think the ones to really be careful about is when you've got patients who are progressing quite rapidly um, and also particularly patients who've got painful axonal neuropathies um, because that might indicate some of the more sort of nasty paraproteinemic disorders such as cryoglobulinemic neuropathies, amyloidosis and POEM syndrome. And again, we could probably talk about those in more detail, but that's kind of where the, the red flags might appear. Um, so what I tend to do, however, is try and kind of split the paraproteinemic neuropathies up in terms of the heavy chain that um, you're seeing before you. Um, so typically most patients, as I mentioned before, can present with a, um, a monoclonal gammopathy of unknown significance. Um, you will have the, uh, the, the immunofixation that will say they've got an IgM paraprotein or they've got an IgG and IgA. And I think, you know, those patients mostly will be benign and they won't progress over their life and they may not develop any further symptoms. However, some of those cases will develop hematological or neurological diseases down the line as their sort of um, paraprotein uh, progresses. And the way I think of it in the hematological field, IgM paraproteins, as I mentioned, can be a benign MGUS, but also can be a sign of a, um, a other hematological malignancy, such as Waldenstrom's macroglobulinemia, which is essentially a lymphoplasmacytic lymphoma in the presence of an IgM. Um, and that's something that haematologists might deal with. And certainly patients who've got a very high level of an IgM paraprotein in the blood, if they've got other systemic features, and um, they might investigate further with a bone marrow or a, or a lymph node biopsy demonstrating that pathology. And that will also require treatment. 
Um, those patients also, any patient who's got a paraprotein in the blood, um, which is severe enough um, uh, or high enough level, can also develop systemic amyloidosis. And as you know, this is a sort of protein folding disorder, and that can lead to severe cardiac and renal disease, but also peripheral neuropathy. And that's something else which um, IgMs can develop in. If you're looking in IgGs or IgA families, um, they will not cause their Wallenstroms. IgGs and IgAs and can progress on to multiple myeloma, which I mentioned before, um, being a, the sort of bony lesions, high calcium, um, uh, anemia. Um, and like I say, they're only really in the presence of an IgG or an IgA. So you can kind of immediately split up the hematological cases by the heavy chain. But that also applies in the neurological field. So IgM neuropathies, um, the sort of typical phenotype you'll see with an IgM is the dad's phenotype, like I mentioned before, the sort of distal acquired demyelinating phenotype. And that can be in the presence of an anti-mag antibody as well. And we could talk about that again in a bit more detail. Um, you might see patients with that sensory motor axonal neuropathy, the sort of more boring presentation, as I mentioned before, um, and they're quite typical to your IgMs. IgGs or IgAs, they tend to present more likely with a CIDP phenotype. So that being early proximal weakness, um, typical CIDP type of neurophysiology. And those patients respond to immunoglobulins just like a standard non-paraproteinemic CIDP case would. So as you can see, you can kind of stratify your cases based upon the, the heavy chain. One thing to mention um, is that in both IgGs, IgAs or IgMs sort of together, all of those conditions can cause peripheral nerve amyloidosis. So the abnormal folding of proteins that get stuck in the peripheral nervous system, causing pain, uh, sort of more rapidly developing neuropathy that requires treatment. Cryoglobulinemic neuropathies and they're again a, a sort of a protein uh, insoluble protein uh, condition, which again causes a painful axonal neuropathy and also neurolymphomatosis, which is this infiltrative condition of the peripheral nervous system, again, um, which requires investigation and further treatment. So there are some overlaps, but certainly the phenotypes might differ dependent on the heavy chain itself. Something I'm certainly learning is to try and put GNA together as, as one family and then the IgMs as another family because they have quite different hematological and neurological sort of associated conditions. Um, great. OK, so um, Let's. I think uh, it might it might be the point where we've we've touched upon it and sort of danced around it a little bit, but I think we may need to get down into the details a little bit. Um, so could we go into a bit of detail about some of the specific phenotypes that have been very well characterised within the umbrella term of paraproteinemic neuropathies? Um, uh, and, and I'd be happy to start wherever you'd like to start, really. But um, I guess anti-mag is is one of the sort of canonical ones that that many neurologists are aware of. Maybe we just go into a bit of detail about that, if that's okay. Yep, so we kind of touched on it slightly before, but, um, you know, as you say, it's uh, certainly something that comes up in exams as well, so it's worth talking about. Um, Anti-mag neuropathies, that's the neuropathy which is in the presence of an IgM paraprotein. Um, this is the very characteristic dad's phenotype we were talking about. So the patients tend to be elderly, quite often male, um, and they'll have a distal acquired sensory neuropathy. So this is a chronic progressive sensory ataxic neuropathy. So patients will have quite severe sensory loss in the lower limbs um, uh, with a, a predominant sensory ataxia. They'll have a broad-based gait. Um, they will have difficulty ambulating um, due to un, uh, instability. So it'd be quite broad and looking toward the floor um, in order to kind of see where their limbs are in space. 
um, they, they will have little, uh, if any, motor involvement. Um, and there's also this other characteristic feature of an upper limb tremor. And actually, to characterise it more in more detail, it's sort of a polyminimyoclonus tremor, if uh, you want to be sort of precise about that. Um, so when you see that phenotype in the presence of an IgM paraprotein, this is when you're thinking, well, this may be related also more specifically to the um, anti-MAGs. This is myelin-associated glycoprotein antibodies. Uh, and you can send them off um, from a sort of serolog serological test. Quite often they're in the several thousands. Um, the level doesn't necessarily co correlate with the clinical uh, disease. And also there are different assays that are employed in different immunology labs. So um, you can't necessarily always compare one against another. But uh, certainly this is a, a phenotype which is, is quite commonly seen and um, has very typical neurophysiology uh, of a demyelinating pattern with prolonged distal motor latencies. Um, and as I mentioned before, um, these IgM uh, paraprotein patients who have this DADS phenotype with or without the anti uh, antibodies don't often require treatment because they're quite slowly progressive. Um, you know, you give patient a stick and you give them some orthotics and actually their stability improves and you can see them on a number of years and they don't necessarily need any further treatment. However, um, if you've got a younger patient who has a more sort of rapidly progressive symptomatology, um, if they have disabling tremor, you're finding that they're, 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 um, they're falling over very often, those patients might be somebody who you consider treating. Um, immunotherapy typically doesn't have a significantly sustained response to your immunoglobulins and steroids, for example. And um, actually, there's been a number of um, uh, sort of small studies that have identified rituximab as working in these patients. And um, over the coming months, I think this has now been approved for the NHS in conjunction with haematologists that these patients can be approved for rituximab. And essentially, what rituximab is doing is depleting the um, the 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 B cells which um, express CD20 and therefore you're reducing the the plasma cells which reduce the antibodies for Mag and um, and hopefully that some of those patients uh, will improve. Brilliant, uh, thank you. That's a great rundown of the phenotype of Mag and thank you in the middle there for clarifying what we mean by Mag. I think this this field is full of lots of acronyms and uh, we're just keep to thank you for for making sure that that gets across. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, MAG, I guess we've spoken about, um, just for my learning in this particular space, actually, Stephen, in anti-MAG um, neuropathy, is the antibody thought to be directly sort of pathogenic or is it, in this particular case, just thought to be sort of coincidental? No, uh, it is. I think, you know, from my understanding is that, that it is, you know, these, these antibodies are um, pathogenic in the sense that they do bind to um, antigens which are within the uh, the myelin sheath so that's where the sort of mag comes from um, and if you use um, certain imaging techniques you can actually see the uh, antibody binding within those structures and there's a very clear sort of pathological pictures that are, are also identified of um, the, the the myelin becoming more spaced out and that having uh, neurophysiological effects so um, sort of the the antibody antigens fit um the neurophysiology fits with that and the underlying pathology so this is quite a clear um a sort of pathogenic um uh, well understood um mechanism right thank you for that that's uh, very clear um okay so to move from um antimag to another sort of exam favorite uh, and, and uh, dare i say one of your favorite poems so um could you tell us all about poems what, what the acronym is and um and what what you what, what neurologists should know about it yeah, of course. Um, so poem syndrome, another acronym. 
Um, this is a rare multi-system disorder, which is characterized by the presence of a monoclonal plasma cell disorder and a, uh, an inflammatory neuropathy. So there's a whole host of multi-system effects in Poems syndrome, but typically people stick to the acronym POEMS, which stands for a polyneuropathy, organomegaly, endocrinopathy, monoclonal plasma cell disorder, and skin lesions. So I suppose the sort of key things to think about is how the patient present. Um, they will present with a neuropathy, of course, to neurologists. Um, the neuropathy itself is quite characteristic for people who've seen patients with Poems syndrome before. Um, one thing I would say is it gives a demyelinating or does give evidence of uh, sort of conduction slowing on the nerve conduction studies and often in about 60% of cases is misdiagnosed as CIDP. Um, the, the neuropathy itself though is quite different in the sense that a poem's neuropathy is very symmetrical, it's uh, very distal um, at the onset of disease in comparison to CIDP which is um, sort of characteristically starts with proximal involvement and distal involvement. Um, neuropathy in POEM syndrome is also painful in about 75% of cases with this tight cramping calf pain, which is a bit like uh, patients who've got peripheral vascular disease. And I think a couple of other sort of um, things you can hang your hat on is the uh, peripheral edema that you see with POEM syndrome as part of the, the, the disease, um, which is not that common in early stages of patients with neuropathy. And also you may see some of the characteristic skin lesions. So just talking about some of the skin lesions, patients typically describe sort of excessive hair growth. Um, they talk about bluey, purpley discoloration of the feet. It's called um, acrocyanosis. Uh, they might talk about the swelling as a sort of skin problem as well. Um, patients also have leukonychia. Um, and there's also these very characteristic lesions called glomerular hemangiomata, which are sort of these ready, purpley, discolorated um, lumps on, across the, typically sort of across the trunk, but also uh, you might see them on the arms and the legs. And um, they're very, very characteristic for Poems syndrome and they tend to be driven by the underlying cytokine VEGF. So if you really see those in a patient with a demyelinating neuropathy, you, you're really sort of thinking about Poems syndrome in particular. Um, the, the neurophysiology is very typical as well. Um, as I mentioned before, because there's demyelination, it typically gets misdiagnosed as CIDP. What you tend to find is that there's a mixed pattern with axonal loss um, sort of predominating uh, in the lower limbs. Quite often you have no responses in the lower limbs due to the severe axonal loss and you have demyelination in the upper limbs where the disease is sort of at its early stages. So if you see demyelination in the upper limbs with loss of um, response in the lower limbs, again, that might make you think about Poems syndrome rather than again CIDP in the early stages, which is typically more demyelinating with little axonal loss. And you also get to see a bit more conduction block and temporal dispersion, which are not common features of Poems syndrome. Um, the monoclonal plasma cell disorder is pretty much almost always IgG or IgA lambda light chain restricted. So it's the lambda light chain part, which is the kind of really typical part that, again, you might be questioned about in exams. So if you see a patient with a lambda light chain paraprotein and a demyelinating neuropathy, you really should be thinking about Poems syndrome. It's, it's, it's quite likely in that circumstance that, that the monoclonal plasma cell disorder is part of a Poems syndrome. Um, other features, the endocrinopathy, probably something that, that neurologists don't pick up on too much, but certainly provides patients with quite significant uh, morbidity. It will, it's typically the sort of hypothalamic pituitary axis that's knocked, so patients have problems with sexual dysfunction, erectile dysfunction, infertility. They'll be very fatigued, um, and that's something which we kind of pick up on screening tests. 
Um, and really, I think once you've kind of picked up some of those features, um, they're the kind of characteristic fe clinical features. I think another one that people talk about quite often is patients who you originally think of CIDP, but they're treatment resistant. So they've had several courses of IVIG and nothing's happened. They might have steroids and they might have a mild transient response. Certainly a sort of treatment resistant CIDP should make you think about a paraproteinemic uh, sort of poem syndrome. And you should probably go hunting a bit more detail for a paraprotein in the blood and possibly some other uh, tests at that stage too. Excellent. That's a uh... Yes, that's a really um, a very well described sort of uh, phenotype of, of, of paraprotein neuropathy, isn't it, poem syndrome? I think uh, certainly what I've, I've learned from what you said there is I, I always knew that there was skin changes. I didn't ever really know what to look for, but that was, um, no, thank you for explaining that as well. We were told to uh, send off uh, this uh, VEGF, the cytokine that we know is associated um, with poems. Um, any comments on uh, VEGF and its role in this condition? Yep, sure. So, um... I think one thing just to mention that we kind of touched upon before as well was just sort of a how do you investigate a patient for a paraproteinemic neuropathy and sometimes that's kind of important because I think if you do have a case where you either have a paraprotein or you suspect they've got a paraproteinemic disorder so they kind of present like poem syndrome um, but you haven't quite really found anything on the serum protein electrophoresis there is a sort of a more detailed battery test that you might want to consider um, so we've spoken about a protein electrophoresis and immunofixation as a sort of a, a beginning first steps, but there are some other tests to do. So if you're really searching for a power protein, you'd also quite like to send off the serum free light chains um, that will give you the distribution of sort of kappa and lambda light chains in the blood. Um, it's, it's slightly more useful for multiple myeloma where you might see a sort of very high level of a light chain, but some of the sort of poem syndrome and the other paraproteinemic disorders, you, you might see an imbalance in the light chains from there. Another thing to mention is that the um, the protein electrophoresis and immunofixation that's done in the serum can also be done in the urine. So um, the urine, obviously the kidneys uh, concentrate a number of different things, but they also concentrate proteins. And um, therefore, if you've got paraproteinemic disorder, it might be that you get a more concentrated um, immunoglobulin that's in the urine. So you can send off for a urine electrophoresis, which is looking for this typical Bench-Jones protein, which is the same thing as the sort of um, uh, paraprotein in the urine. And you can also send off the urine for immunofixation too. So I'd certainly think about sending off those extra tests as well if I had a, a, a clinical suspicion. And we've also got some patients who, in all these paraproteinemic disorders, so um, when you're looking for patients who've got POEM syndrome or somebody's got something like amyloidosis or they've got, um, you know, possible uh, evidence of cryoglobulinemic neuropathy, um, you know, there are some cases where actually despite all the serum tests come back as being negative and you're really keen on uh, diagnosing a paraproteinemic disorder, you'd also go for a bone marrow biopsy. Um, and certainly, you know, that's where you can also find evidence of your underlying plasma cell dyscrasia from there. Um, when it comes to vascular endothelial growth factor, um, as I mentioned before, this will be this is sort of the key diagnostic biomarker for Poem syndrome. So VEGF, vascular endothelial growth factor, is a potent proangiogenic cytokine. Um, it's markedly raised in the blood of patients who've got Poem syndrome. Um, the upper limit of normal is about 771 from the serum. And in patients with Poem syndrome, you're looking at levels of about 2000. Um, when you compare this against other forms of inflammatory neuropathy, um, you'll, you'll almost never see levels of over a thousand. You might see some levels that are slightly raised, but you won't see them in the sort of uh, 1,000, 2,000 or higher than that. 
And also that goes the same with other hematological conditions as well. So it's very sensitive and specific in the diagnosis of Perlman syndrome. And also it significantly reduces back to normal levels upon um, patients who are successfully treated. So again, it's a quite a straightforward serological blood test. It doesn't require being put on ice. It just goes in a normal gold top and you have to send it to a reference laboratory of which I think there are now two or three across the UK. It costs about £55 and you normally get a result in a couple of weeks. I think one thing that's important to mention, you know, with the sort of difficulties sometimes in terms of identifying uh, para, the typical paraproteinemic disorder, um, with the difficulties of the immunofixation, some of the labs not doing it, the serum protein electrophoresis. I actually think that if you've got a patient who's got a CIDP phenotype or they've got a demyelinating neuropathy um, at the door, it wouldn't be a, a bad idea to send off a VEGF early on because if it's significantly raised, it will highlight the indication to really seek out the paraprotein and seek out some of the extra features of Poem syndrome. And that's where you'll be able to kind of split the two, the CIDPs from the VEGF, from the Poem syndrome cases, and then you can give them very appropriate treatment at an early stage. And we've done studies looking into this and it's actually cost effective by the looks of it in terms of sending off an early VEGF because it's such a useful biomarker. Um, and so, so you just touched on uh, treatment there. I don't want to go too much into it, but is, is the treatment between someone with CIDP and someone with um, poems that, that different? Yep. So um, the, unfortunately, the IVIGs, uh, plasma exchanges, don't really work with poems syndrome as they do very well for CIDP. So um, typically you'll have patients who have uh, multiple courses of IVIG before uh, somebody thinks, well, maybe this is not CIDP. And by that time, the diagnosis of Poem syndrome is made typically at about the 12 month stage of, um, of, of sort of diagnostic delay. Um, Poem syndrome is much the treatment of poems and all the sort of other paraproteinemic disorders, particularly the ones that you're going to treat, such as the cryoglobulins and the amyloidosis, is directed towards the underlying plasma cell malignancy. So in Poem syndrome, uh, you either have the monoclonal plasma cell disorder, the sort of aberrant plasma cell clones throughout all the bone marrow. So if you take a bone marrow biopsy and there are abnormal cells in there, that tells you that the disease is generalised. And in those cases, you'll put them forward if they can tolerate it for a stem cell transplant. Cases who are not physiologically fit enough because they've got bad vascular uh, uh, um, sort of um, leak or if they've got other sort of multi-system effects of the Perlman syndrome might be put forward for disease modifying chemotherapy and that tends to be things like lenalidomide or bortezomib and some of those patients can get pre-optimized for a stem cell transplant down the line. Now in cases when you take a bone marrow biopsy and there's no abnormal cells then that's indicating that the plasma cells are being produced from one area so one plasma cytoma so that's the cases that PET scan imaging becomes very useful you might identify a, a lesion or a couple of lesions where you've got these hot spots and if you biopsy one of those you'll see the abnormal plasma cells and in those cases it's not necessary to give them systemic chemotherapy agents uh, they can sort of do well with just local radiotherapy to zap those plasma cells and those patients improve in a similar way. Brilliant okay thank you so yeah the, the treatments are, are very very different indeed. Um, Fantastic. So I think that's a good amount of detail on um, so far on, on anti-mag and now on poems. Um, are there any particular um, paraproteinemic neuropathies that you think the neurologist should have a good understanding of before we um, before we come to the end? Well, I suppose kind of the last two or three just to put in place are kind of 
as I mentioned before, you've got that group of patients who have a paraprotein, they've got a demyelinating or an axonal gradually progressive neuropathy. It's not something you're necessarily going to do much about. I think it's really important to be able to identify those cases that do have something more sinister underlying and those patients who you're going to put forward for sort of disease modifying therapy to improve their outcomes. And that's sort of in a, in a group together in some respect is looking at the amyloidosis patients and cryoglobulinemic neuropathies. So they can occur in any types of the uh, heavy or light chain uh, distribution. And we'll talk about amyloidosis. And this is amyloid light chain uh, amyloidosis, which is due to underlying plasma cell disorder. So any of the hematological disorders. So typically you see it in myeloma where you get lots of plasma cells. You can also see it in MGUSs and you can see it in conditions like Waldenstrom's. And essentially what happens is the, um, the, the abnormal proteins, the abnormal an uh, antibodies that are being produced um, uh, abnormally fold into amyloid deposits. They get stuck into various places, either systemically, such as in the heart and in the kidneys, but also in the peripheral nervous system. And some patients can present purely with the neuropathy and it comes to neurologists first who make the diagnosis before there are any systemic features. Um, the key thing to identify in amyloidosis is patients typically present with a length dependent uh, sensory neuropathy with small fibre involvement. So small fibre involvement in those patients who've got dysesthetic, painful feet, particularly they'll talk about burning pain at night time, um, sort of enough to be pain when they sort of drag the sheets across the feet, that sort of um, allodynic pain that, that patients describe. Um, and they'll also have a combination of that with dysautonomia. So they might have anhydrosis, postural hypertension, erectile dysfunction or gastroparesis. Um, also, sort of another another red flag might be patients who present with a kind of quite early bilateral carpal tunnel syndrome. So that kind of tr triple things of the typical neuropathy, bilateral carpal tunnel, dysautonomia, make you think of amyloidosis. In terms of investigations for that, um, you can send them to Amyloidosis Centre, which is down in London at the Royal Free, and they'll look for systemic amyloidosis through a, a rectal biopsy. They've got serum amyloid scans. But from the neurological perspective, you'd be setting those patients up for a nerve biopsy. And you're typically looking for those amyloid deposits on the um, nerve biopsy, which display the green uh, uh, bifringence pattern on polarised light microscopy, which gives the diagnosis or the, or, or the identification of the amyloid fibrils with a Congo red stain. Treatment of that is essentially just treating the underlying hematological dysgrasia. So if that's myeloma, you'll get treatment for that. If it's um, MGUS, you know, you treat you might you might decide to treat the paraprotein from there. Looking at cryoglobulinemic neuropathy, it's quite similar in some respects. Um, cryoglobulins essentially are proteins that become insoluble in the cold. So these are the antibodies that are being produced by any of those underlying hematological disorders. They're producing antibodies that for some purpose they precipitate in the cold. So when the blood gets down into the extremities, typically where it's a bit cooler, they start precipitating and becoming insoluble and they will start depositing in various parts of the body. So again, um, the uh, systemic features of cryoglobulinemia might be uh, disorders with uh, sort of skin infarction, levita reticularis, renal disease, joint pain, but also can get stuck in the peripheral nervous system, leading to a small fibre neuropathy. You might have a symmetrical or a mononeuritis multiplex picture, but typically it's very painful. So again, both of the amyloidosis 
and cryoglobulinemia is a patient who has a severely painful neuropathy, it will be axonal and hopefully you've identified that there's a power protein in the blood which makes you think about those disorders and again in cryoglobulinemic neuropathies they will require a, a nerve biopsy looking for cryoglobulins and once again treating the underlying hematological disease is the key to the to, to the mainstay of treatment. And then lastly, very rare condition is neurolymphomatosis. And essentially, this is a direct infiltration of malignant lympho lymphoid cells into the peripheral nervous system. Um, but because of that, the presentation is very heterogeneous. So uh, dependent on where the, in, the malignant cells are infiltrating depends on the sort of clinical phenotype. But generally speaking, patients have multiple mononeuropathies. So it's picking off individual nerves. So it might pick off a median nerve, it might pick off a radial nerve, it might pick off the sciatic nerve. And as time goes on, that starts progressing. And then actually over time, it might become a bit more confluent. But once again, because it's infiltrative, it can be very, very painful. So patients will prevent, present with that mononeuritis multiplex picture, um, there's no real clear diagnostic test. You would probably do imaging looking for any sign of infiltration. You may send off CSFs looking for abnormal malignant cells if, they, if there's infiltration into the CNS. And also you look for a power protein with the blood test and a bone marrow biopsy. Um, once you've made a diagnosis, a tissue diagnosis, um, you'd be looking for through uh, a nerve through taking a nerve, a nerve biopsy and once you've done that and again treating the underlying sort of hematological disease is what leads to um, uh, 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 patients improving but quite typically uh, the outcomes are not all that great because it takes quite a long time for patients to be diagnosed and by that time um, their outcomes are, are less good. Excellent. Thank you um, so much. I think we've covered a, a great, uh, quite, quite a breadth in that topic, but also gone into quite a lot of depth on a lot of those um, specific presentations. Um, thank you so much for your time, Stephen. Um, are there any particular sort of key take home messages that you want the listeners to, to, to go away with? Yep. So, um, I mean, I think it's important just to stress that, uh, as I mentioned before, kind of paraproteins are quite commonly associated with neuropathy. So it's always important to look for paraproteins, um, whether or not they are associated with the disease or whether or not they're kind of driving it. Um, certainly make sure that you're always asking the laboratories to carry out the immunofixation um, with the serum protein electrophoresis, and you'll probably identify many more paraproteins from doing so. Um, and then I think the key thing is, is really trying to identify what that phenotype is and whether or not you think that the paraprotein itself is directly related to the underlying neurological presentation, or if you've just got this sort of purely coincidental MGUS, or if it's a paraprotein neuropathy that doesn't necessarily require treatment. So there's kind of three broad um, uh, types of patients that you'll be seeing. If you do have a paraprotein neuropathy that you think is driving the disease, then obviously it's very good having a, a good relationship with hematologists. And often the treatment is directed uh, to that underlying plasma cell clone and sort of where it where it presents and also how severe it is. Excellent. Once again, thank you so much for your time, Stephen. That's been very informative. Um, I'm sure the listeners will uh, enjoy that. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk.